And the first thing you hear is the producer saying to her, are you ready uh, to do the interview, ready to talk? And she says, I didn't want to talk to you when you first called me, and I still don't. And that hooked people in. You can see the mix of Welcome to the 30,000 Hours Podcast. Today is April 13th. I'm Monica Bolger, PhD in education who studies child rights online, and I'm honored to be joined by Stephen Dost, co-founder of Red Marble Media. He has developed and produced dozens of hit series and specials for the Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, Investigation, Discovery. Um, His biggest hit is Evil Lives Here, and a very popular show was on Animal Planet, Monsters Inside Me. I am fortunate enough to have moved across the hall from Stephen in Brooklyn and uh, gotten to see his many masterpieces and genius at work. Thank you for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you so much. And masterpieces might be a bit of hyperbole, but that's just good storytelling. (laughs) I might be, exactly. And I might be quite the fan as your former neighbor. (laughs) Um, Today we're going to be talking about storytelling, and we're going to talk about this in two ways. First of all, we're in this incredible moment. Um, I don't want to use unprecedented anymore because it seems to be being overused, but uh, we are in this historic moment. And with everyone at home, this is a good opportunity for children to to document this moment and to tell this story. And so part of what we're going to be talking about is how to tell a good story, the elements of a good story. But then we're going to go meta and talk about how understanding the elements of a good story can help us better interpret the news and information we're getting um, in this in in the coronavirus world. So, yeah, and to be and I think to be skeptical of of good stories too, because good stories, if someone can tell a story and it's really powerful, uh, you have to you know you have to be skeptical because storytelling you know is is so powerful it's almost hypnotizing that it can make us believe things that aren't necessarily true. That's really powerful, actually. Um, So why don't we launch in? What makes a good story? What makes a good story? Uh, I think it comes down to, I think a good story fundamentally has to do with conveying an emotional experience. You know, if you watch a movie, you read a book, uh, you watch a Netflix show, uh, a good story moves you emotionally in some way. It's not enough it to make you think it has to make you feel and you know we all know what a bad story is if we if we get through a story and we we found it boring it didn't engage us uh, then it doesn't work it has to convey some kind of emotional experience and the way it usually does that is through some kind of conflict you know there's a relatable person we're on a journey with someone we can relate to uh, who goes through some kind of conflict and overcomes that conflict. And if it's a good story, uh, you want to see this person succeed. You root for them. And, uh, and you don't want to see them fail. So I think those are the basics of a good story. And what are different ways of telling a story? And how do you decide which way to go? Well, that's a challenge. So I, I oversee 
shows for uh, right now for Investigation Discovery, which is a true crime network. And the challenge there is that fundamentally, uh, every story is, has the same basic elements. Someone is killed, a detective uh, comes in, looks at the evidence, goes through suspects, uh, and eventually solves the crime and the person who did it is put away. Now people would not want to keep watching these shows if that were the story over and over and over again. So what you have to do is you have to take the set of facts and you have to interpret them. You have to decide whose perspective you're going to tell. Is it the detective's point of view? Is it the family's point of view? Is it a mixture of those points of view? Um, who is your hero? You know, who are you following? In Evil Lives Here, uh, it's a series we do about family members of people who turned out to be murderers. The reason that one has resonated so much is we decided the way we're going to tell this story is not from the detective's point of view. It's going to be the family of the killer. And that was a point of view that people hadn't heard before. So I think one of the first things you have to do is decide whose point of view is this story coming from. And who do you want the audience to relate to? Who, uh, who is going to be the person in your story who's going to establish that connection to, to the viewers if you're making a TV show or to your listeners if you're, making, uh, if you're doing a podcast? Uh, who's going to create that emotional connection? This is so fascinating. What are ways kids can capture this moment? Kids are really good at it. They're really good at it. So I don't know if you remember, did you follow Vine at all when Vine was still a thing? No, I didn't actually. It's, it's brilliant. So Vine was uh, six second videos. You had a limit of six seconds. And what was amazing about it is that people, usually kids, because this was aimed at you know, teenagers, people in their early 20s, and kids, uh, filmed themselves, made a little video that told a story in six seconds. And if you can do that, if you can figure out how, how to tell a story in six seconds, then you get the basics of storytelling. It's now, uh, now it's moved over to, to places like TikTok. Um, and it's really fascinating because it forces you when you you know when you're when you're forced into some kind of limitation like like one page or six seconds, it forces you to boil down your story to the most important uh, elements. That's really exciting, and I can't even imagine trying to tell a story in six seconds. That's amazing. <laughs> so, how can kids use what's around them to build a story? And you might have seen that in in the Vine examples. Well, yeah, I mean, you can do it on your iPhone, you know, documenting this experience. This is something that we're going to be talking about, you know, when, when we're old. Uh, we're going to be, this is, you know, kind of so historic that we're going to be telling stories about what this was like to go through. So one of the things that you can do is you can, uh, you can start a diary and, and, you know, at the end of every day record what the experience was like. And then later, what you do is you edit it down. Editing is, is a, is a uh, really impart, important part of storytelling. So David Sedaris, for example, what he does is he keeps a notebook with him. And anytime there's an interesting observation, he'll write it down. And then months or even sometimes years later, he'll go back through this notebook. 
And he looks at it and says, well, what's memorable? What was interesting? What conveys a story? And he'll cull from that material. Uh, so one of the, I guess one of the things that you can do if you want to tell a story out of this experience is don't think about what the story is going to be yet, just document. Um, you can record videos, you can write diary entries, just put it all down and then decide later what the story is going to be after you've collected it because this could go on for a while. Right. For me, the best stories surprise me. They tell me something I didn't know before. They take an angle I hadn't thought of. As an expert storyteller, how do you make that happen? So you have to, surprise is important because one of the, you know, if you're not, one of the signs you're not engaged in, say, a movie, is you know exactly what's going to happen next. If you know exactly what's going to happen next, it's not surprising. If it's not surprising, it's not interesting. You have to, uh, you have to subvert people's expectations. So, for example, in the show that I do called Eva Lives Here, uh, typically in an ID show, in a show for investigation discovery, the way that show would start is you would uh, hear a narrator say, on a cold night, and then you'd hear from different interviewees and different bites, um, and you'd see a flash of images all leading up to the title sequence. It's called a cold open, where it's, it basically acts like a quick, exciting preview of what you're about to see. And it's very fast paced, um, and there's a lot of music, and it's very loud. And the idea is to get you interested in the show that you're about to watch. When we did Evil Lives Here, we decided to change that completely. Uh, we were interviewing uh, the stepmother of someone who turned out to be a killer. Uh, her name is Candace, and the show starts, and there's no music. All you see is Candace getting a microphone put on by the crew, and nobody's talking. Uh, it's very quiet, and Candace is kind of looking around, like not sure what, what's about to happen, and it's just very quiet. And the first thing you hear is the producer saying to her, are you ready uh, to do the interview, ready to talk? And she says, I didn't want to talk to you when you first called me, and I still don't. And that hooked people in. <laughs> Nothing like that had been shown uh, on ID. So as soon as people tuned into the show, their expectation of how a show starts was subverted, and it's a little uncomfortable because it's not what you're used to, but it makes you curious to see what's about to happen. Well, that makes me think that part of storytelling, too, is noticing these moments, these exceptional moments or these memorable moments, because that certainly wasn't something that had been planned in a script or anything before you started your interview process. Right, and that's the thing about storytelling is you don't have to know in the moment. You know, we did the interview just as we've done every other interview. It was only in the in, uh, afterward in looking at what we had filmed that we said, oh, we have an opportunity here to do something different. Oh, that's exciting. I, I, I really admire storytelling because as a researcher, often the work we produce is dry and uninteresting. You, it, it might be incredibly compelling to the researcher, but it's very challenging sometimes to communicate that to the public. It can be. And you know, some so I used to do a lot of shows, science-based shows, 
Uh, and my challenge was to interview scientists and then translate the science in a way that people, and turn it into a story when it didn't necessarily lend itself to a great story. And that can be challenging because in turning it into a story, you can't get the science wrong. You can push it, you know, the need to put something into a story is so compelling that it's very easy to oversimplify. And if you oversimplify science, you can get it wrong. Um, you know, one example was I was doing a, uh, a show about, they were sending a, a spaceship to Mars. And, you know, the scientist was giving me all kinds of facts about the velocity and the, and the amount of fuel to express how difficult it was. Because my question was, how hard is this? And I'm getting very technical answers. And he could tell I was a little dissatisfied. And finally he said, you know, all right, I'll tell you how, how hard this is. It's like hitting a golf ball from Los Angeles and getting a hole in one in New York. That's what landing Perfect. on Mars is like. Okay. And I said, aha. Now there's no science there really. It's just a metaphor, uh, but it tells, it paints an image that people understand. It's like, okay, right. I kind of get it. Like an indelible image. That's, that's right. amazing. Um, and, and that kind of brings us then to our meta discussion that we, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that right. how, how stories then can be used to manipulate us or um, muddy the waters or confuse us or, or get us to focus on one thing over another. And in this, as you said, in this particular moment of coronavirus, this is really critical that we understand those uh, it is strategies because, and techniques. That's right, because you know, it, it can be a useful tool, especially for people who you know, study statistics and, and, and for, for example, you know, if you, if you can tell people that 480,000 people die of smoking in the US every year, which is true, but people hear a number like 480,000 and that's hard to wrap your mind around uh, and, there's no, and there's not a story. Whereas if you tell them the story of one person uh, who smoked and suffered horrible consequences or even died, that's going to stick with people better. And, you know, if you watch uh, commercials, you'll see one person who smoked and regretted it. And that creates an impression that's more memorable because it's one person's story. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that people can use stories to create false impressions, to, uh, to exaggerate things, to focus your attention on something that doesn't really matter. Um, they can create false stories that are very compelling and we're, you know, we're kind of wired to believe a story. Um, so you have to stay skeptical. If, t if someone's telling you a really good story, uh, there, sometimes there's such a thing as it's, you know, it's too good to be true, too good a story to be true. Uh, so you have to stay skeptical. And our brains, our brains love stories. That's how we make sense of the world. And so we're, we're more likely to believe a good story, especially if it aligns with our prior expectations or our assumptions or our worldviews than we well, are to... Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but I did interview them, so I can speak for them. <laughs> but imagine yourself, you know, 100,000 years. Imagine yourself around a campfire. And, uh, and uh, one of the people uh, in your tribe uh, comes back, he comes over the hill, and it's nighttime. 
And he says, you'll never believe what just happened to me. I was over by the river and guess what I saw? I saw a huge lion and he looked hungry. So I ran out of there and came back here. Now everyone around the story is gonna be kind of hypnotized by that. And there's a survival reason, you know? Um, it's not in my interest to doubt your story and say, you know what, I'm gonna go check that out for myself and see, that, see if that line's really there. Because <laughs> right. there's a good chance that I'm gonna get eaten. Uh, so that's kind of why we're wired to believe a story, why it kind of has that hypnotic, powerful effect. Um, and why we remember stories so clearly if they're good ones. Um, but you got to be careful because people can take advantage of that. I think so. I'm, I'm really concerned actually as a media literacy scholar um, about people not knowing what to trust anymore. So uh, my parents watch Fox News and read Wall Street Journal and they're not... A, they're not paying attention to the fact that they're both owned by Rupert Murdoch. They, they feel that they're getting diverse perspectives. And uh, my, my dad has shared, you know, what a strong um, government we have right now because we were able to shut the whole thing down when there's coronavirus. Right. Um, I'm speaking to someone else whose husband is convinced that 5G is the reason we're all inside, that, five, that, that we're... That, oh. Conspiracy yes. theories. I'll tell you, conspiracy theories. People love a good conspiracy theory, and that's the kind of that's the kind of story you got to watch out for. You know, a, a story. You know, a story can show some kind of cause and effect, uh, even when it's not true. And sometimes, a, a good conspiracy theory can take pieces that we can't quite understand, and mm. shape them into a story where all the pieces seem to fit. And there is something psychologically really appealing about that. Um, it, it, it's very scary. You should do, just do what I do, which is whenever I'm at my mother's house, I just turn off Fox News. <laughs> just turn it off. Excellent suggestion. And I think that that's a really good point about um, mm. the compellingness of, of conspiracy theories. And when you mentioned cause and effect, that was reminding me that last week I got, uh, I noticed on Facebook people from, from different groups that don't usually align. Uh, so people who feel that they, you know, are very, well, everyone actually, Fox viewers and non-Fox viewers feel that they're doing a good job evaluating media. Um, but I noticed quite a few people were discussing herd immunity and, and as that, that was the explanation for why it hadn't hit California as, as hard perhaps as other, as other states. And, and I was, I was reading it to try to figure out what was so compelling. And I think it was just this idea that right now in, in a time of such uncertainty, people are really looking for answers. And if an answer, and they're looking for the cause. Right. for this effect. And, and we don't even really understand the effect yet either. And so I think that we're really vulnerable right now to the compellingness. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, people fundamentally want to believe that there is some order, that there is some plan, uh, that things have an explanation, um, that someone's in control, even if it's not the people you want to be in control. That's the appeal of these kind of stories and these kind of conspiracy theories is even, you know, if they're claiming, well, it's all some nefarious plot, at least there's a plot, at least there's a plan. Um, people don't want to believe that, that it's just chaos because that's a scary thing. 
And that's where, that's where people who are excellent at telling stories can really um, manipulate if they chose to. They can, and they, and they can also do the opposite. You know, um, with, with the kinds of stories that we tell on investigation discovery, if it's done poorly, it's exploitative and crass and sensational. If, it's, if the story is told well and you represent, uh, you know, how, how this detective... Uh, brought justice to a family, um, uh, you know, potentially saved lives, uh, that same story can be really inspirational. Um, so it's all in the hands of the storyteller, and the storyteller has a lot of, has a lot of power there. And it can, like any kind of power, can be used, uh, used badly or, or used well. It goes back to your Mars example that when used well, it can really one sentence can completely improve our understanding or expand our our minds about an issue. So it's really exciting, actually. Right. And, you know, with science programming especially, uh, if you can't shape it into an interesting story, then nobody's watching. They're going to tune out. The, the, the one thing you can't be is boring. And you can have really fascinating science, and in the hands of a bad producer, a bad storyteller... Uh, nobody's interested. Nobody watches. You don't give them a reason to tune in or to stay interested. So you have to, and that's where you have to find the balance. You have to tell a good story. Uh, then you got to check in with your scientist, the person you interviewed, and say, here's kind of how I'm shaping this. Is this accurate? Um, and hopefully it does two things at once. It accurately conveys uh, the gist of what this person discovered, um, uh, and it's interesting, you know, for people who, you know, don't necessarily have a PhD in physics or rocket science. And just our last point, when, when we were talking about this ahead of time, you talked about good stories are specific to a single time or place and That's not right. vague or general. And so as we're creating our own stories about this and then also watching other stories. What is, what is some advice? Yeah. And what I mean about being vague in general. So if I'm interviewing someone who was married to say a killer, but, but she didn't realize it yet. One of the things that I try to get them to avoid is saying the word would. And what I mean by that is if they're telling a story and, you know, every day he would come home and yell at me and he would do this and he would do that. And that's the kind of person he was. That's very general. It's not unique to a time and place and it's not as interesting. What's better than would is did. Tell me the story about one day when he did come home and do something. And then she'll say, well, I remember one time, you know, it was late at night and I'd been working all day and he came home and here's what happened. That is way more interesting. So one specific example is better than generalizing uh, uh, and being vague. Thank you. And what should we look forward to from you uh, to look? Because I know right now, right, a lot of production has stopped. And so um, is there anything we can be watching right now or in the next few months? Well, this is a challenge for storytelling because one of the new shows that I'm working on, you know, we, we can't film. We can't film interviews even. Uh, we can't film recreations. So we're doing a new show uh, for ID 
which is going to look at uh, archival material. We're going to look at confession tapes. We're going to look at court appearances and tell a story through that archive. So now, uh, you know, we don't have the usual uh, devices that we typically have, which is interviews and, uh, and recreations. Now we just have uh, archival material that already exists and how can we tell the best story that way. And you know, limitation, some of the best storytelling can come from uh, limitation. Uh, that's, you know, limitation is what forces you to be creative. And that's why I say, you know, uh, outlets that force you to tell stories with severe limitations are one of the best ways to learn. That is such a great note to end on, that limitation forces us to be creative. We certainly have a lot of limitations happening sure right do. now. <laughs> we sure do, but <laughs> it, you know, like anything can be a good, can, can be a good learning experience. I do think this is going to inspire a lot of art and storytelling and creativity, so it will be exciting to see what happens. For sure. Thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you.